Hey, it's Nick. Thank you for listening to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. We are bringing you insights from experts from around the world so you can improve your personal and professional performance. Our guest today is Nora Gedgadas, who is a board-certified nutritional consultant and clinical neurofeedback specialist with more than 20 years of clinical experience. This episode is called Primal Genic, The Evolution of Ancestral Eating. In this episode, we discuss the power of neurofeedback, what our ancestors ate and how science proves it, the problems with vegan and carnivore diets. Is there one diet that suits everybody? What is wrong with paleo and keto diets? And why fat has a bad name? If you're enjoying the video and podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to our podcast and like and subscribe to the YouTube videos. If you'd like to get access to our content one week before it's officially released, then please leave your details at www.upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link so you can watch our episodes one week before they're officially released. Nora, welcome to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. Well, thank you, Nick. It's such an honor to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Nora, could you give the audience a little bit of your background and your journey? Yeah, it's been quite the convoluted journey, I'll tell you that. I've got a better than 35 years of background in nutritional science. That's my first love. But it, that has also been its own convoluted journey. It started out with more of an interest in supplements and things like that. And my focus has changed quite a bit, although I still see a, certainly a viable place for supplementation. But I've done a lot of different things. But what sort of led me to where I am now, I suffered intractable depression for you know, more than 35 years of my life, sort of dysthymia to you know, long periods of where there was very strong suicidal ideation. It was a real struggle through a good part of my life. And so that motivated me. And somewhere in uh, the late 1970s or so, I discovered the concept of focusing on, on health and nutrition. And I discovered very quickly that I could change little things about the way I felt and functioned by changing things that I supplemented with. That's what I started with. But I found that if I didn't keep up with that, it wasn't very lasting, but it was something. You know, I suffered intractable depression, but also anxiety and panic attacks that really weren't responding to anything. And I did many years of very high quality psychotherapy. I did all kinds of self-help stuff, many you know, self-help books. I worked with Tony Robbins for a week. You know, I have done tremendous amount with alternative health modalities and things and a lot of different types of supplementation. And I was implementing work with amino acids to improve neurotransmitter activity, et cetera. In the 1980s, I was getting some interesting effects with that. But I kept backsliding. You know, it was like swimming with ankle weights on and I would just kind of keep getting dragged back down. But I knew there was an answer. That was one very good thing about me is that when I know that there's an answer and I know that it's out there, I am doggedly persistent. I'm like a pit bull. There was a lot that went into the writing of my first book. I felt a need to write it because nobody else would. right? And I had discovered and connected some dots. I think that is an area of tremendous strength for me is the ability to connect dots many people might not otherwise think. And so I realized that I put some things, some pieces to the puzzle together that I had never seen put together before. And I wrote this book and I created it. It was like a big brain dump, like I said, because nobody else would. And I figured it was like, okay, this could be some like sideline passive source of income to my practice. I can give it to all my you know, clients. And I knew I had a following in the local nutritional community. And so I figured I could sell a few things. I had no expectation whatsoever or, or even imagining of what would happen with that book. 
it took off like wildfire and suddenly i'm being invited to speak at ucla suddenly i'm being invited to, to do tour australia and to do all these things and before i know it it's become a thing and now i'm on the crest of a wave of a whole new movement that i didn't even know existed now many people may have heard of it as the paleo movement right yeah you know these people alongside me and i'm going how did i get here pretty soon i had two full-time jobs i had my clinical practice and then i had this thing where i was writing and speaking and you know, traveling constantly. You were talking about the work that you do with people who are burned out. I could have used you. <laughs> wow, that's incredible, Nora. Could you tell the audience about the time when you went and lived with wolves and what you experienced there? I spent some time, a whole summer of my life near the North Pole, living with a family of wild wolves. That's like a whole other podcast, but uh, I had done some work in behavioral research with wolves and I was with a wolf biologist and we were up there for you know close to three months and studying this family of wolves and following them around and there was an Inuit community that I spent a few days in before I went into the wilds of you know northern Ellesmere Island and I was seeing you know pretty healthy people you know living in that community and they were living about an 80% subsistence lifestyle maybe 200 people living there. You know, a twin otter plane would come in once a week or once every other week with a few limp vegetables and a bunch of processed crap. And they put it in a store that was about the size of the room I'm sitting in here, you know. And it was expensive, you know. People liked those things, but they couldn't really afford them. So they were mostly eating whatever they could fish out of the surrounding oceans or kill, you know, walrus seal. And that was basically what they had. And the ground is permafrost. You couldn't grow anything. And I'm looking at them and I'm not seeing obesity. And the kids are bright eyed and they're, you know, inquisitive and they're happy and they're playful. And I'm scratching my head thinking, hmm, how are they doing this without being able to eat salads? And, you know, I was bought into the low fat paradigm back then. Yeah. And then I got to Ellesmere and I started realizing that I was experiencing real cravings for fatty foods. And I ended up spending the entire summer up there, not moving around very much because wolves spend a lot of time around the den. And when we follow them on their hunts, we use four wheelers to follow them. And I would take an occasional stroll. Sometimes after hours, it was 24 hour daylight. You know, I would take a stroll once in a while, but I wasn't getting a lot of exercise. Let's put it mm. that way. And I was very well bundled against the cold. You know, at the time, it wasn't the healthiest representation of healthy foods, you know, like cheese and nut butters and salami. I really wasn't eating when I was back home. There was a weather station in some distance away from where we were, and once a week we'd go and get showers, and they let us go into the mess hall and get whatever was laying, you know, grab a bite of whatever was laying out. And there was a huge bowl of butter, and so I was just, you know, putting butter on whatever and just eating all this butter until I was too embarrassed to continue. And by the end of the summer, I'd lost 25 pounds. And I know that there was some thermogenesis at play, but that wasn't the whole equation. There was a real disconnect. I got off the plane and hugged my best friend who came to pick me up. They said, did you do this on purpose? Because I was extremely lean. And I said, no, I sat on my butt and ate fat all summer long. But, you know, it niggled at me. And then I discovered the work of Weston Price. Then a light bulb was going off in my head. And I started looking into, well, what did our indigenous ancestors eat? And that kind of thing, because that seems a little logical to me. But Weston Price's work didn't go back far enough for me. I wanted to dig back further because our physiological makeup and nutritional requirements were already established by the Holocene. I wanted to go back to our earliest prehistoric evolving ancestors and find out what were the foods that were most consistently available to them that would have shaped us, you know, because it seemed to me that that was, would be the only rational starting place that I'd have in terms of figuring out what constitutes an optimal diet for human beings today.
The world was a very different place prior to the Holocene. That's something I talk about quite a bit. I have a book out, Primal Fat Burner. It sounds like a weight loss book. I suppose that'll be everyone's favorite side effect. But what it is about is adopting a fat-based metabolism. It establishes two very well-supported hypotheses that I don't think have been advanced before. Number one, that it was dietary fat, and particularly the fat of animals, that ultimately made us human in the first place. And I can make an argument for that. And number two, that a fat-based metabolism versus a sugar-based metabolism that most people are operating off of is actually the most natural metabolic state of humankind. And it's sugar that's meant to be the auxiliary, you know, or alternative fuel and not fat. Nora, I noticed when I was doing some research for this episode that you're also a neurofeedback practitioner. How did you come to discover neurofeedback? way back in mid-1990s, stumbled across something called neurofeedback, because I was still kind of dealing with the depression and all of that. I hadn't figured out all the nutritional stuff yet. And that was the thing that flipped the switch. But what kept that switch flip was this dietary change, because things got progressively better and better and better. And it's been well over, you know, what, 25 years now, whatever, since I've had any sign or symptom of depression or anxiety or panic attacks. Those things are very much a thing of the past. And I knew by hook or by crook, by the way, at the time, that I wanted to be part of what went on in that field. And I also knew there was a place, in fact, a very foundational place, a dietary approach I had discovered. And so I became a neurofeedback clinician and spent more than 20 years full-time, very successful clinical practice, working with thousands of people in you know, suffering populations in all different kinds. Not everybody's suffering. There are people that came to me because they wanted to get better at what they already did well. Either they were athletes or they were executives, somebody wanting a little extra edge. Because neurofeedback isn't just a treatment, it's brain training, you know. It's a way of improving your own state management, right? And which is more than 80% of the game, even when you're expert at what you do, the functioning of your brain is going to make or break your success in whatever you do. But one of the things that I discovered and that I found myself telling almost everybody that came into my office is that neurofeedback is just insanely powerful. It, it is very effective for a wide variety of things. But no matter what the therapy or the intervention is that you're using to try to better yourself, the brain and the human body need certain raw materials in order to function. And unless you're willing to recognize that, unless you're willing to address that in a foundational way, Nothing else that you do will ever be, you're never going to get as much out of whatever else you do. It's not going to last. The brain and the body need those certain raw materials in order to function. And neurofeedback can then have a much more powerful effect because it has something to work with. So I combined those two things and I found that was virtually foolproof. And I realized that ultimately, you know, what I do now in my mind is so much more foundational. Now, neurofeedback, I will always be passionate about that. I maintain my certification in that, in that arena. And I even published a chapter in an academic book in a subject of neurofeedback uh, that was actually read and caught the attention of the Dalai Lama, which is super cool. That's cool, Nora. Neurofeedback's definitely on my list. And we've interviewed Dr. Andrew Hill from Peak Brain Institute. So I'm fascinated by neurofeedback. So Nora, quite a lot of the time I hear people say that there's one diet that fits everybody. Or I hear people say that they're unique and therefore they need a particular diet that's unique for them. What's your take on that? There are certain PC sort of concepts, you know, politically correct ideas that get tossed around as if they mean something. And I've got a problem, one in particular. Well, more than one. But one that drives me absolutely nuts is that everybody's different, you know, because everyone wants to be that special snowflake, right? Everybody's different. 
Therefore, you know, a high carb diet is right for this person, low carb diet is right for this person, a vegan diet's right for this person, etc., etc. I take issue with that. When I sort of write my blogs and various articles, I do want to talk about what might be right for one person, might not be right for another. I'm fascinated to hear your view on this. Right. I'm talking about basic foundational human nutritional requirements. What defines us as a species mm. is not our differences, but those things that we share in common. Yes, there is a universally foundational human diet. And yes, we all have those unique fingerprints, right? But we also all have fingers. And unless we address that first, that foundational scaffolding, if you will, mm. upon which our health is built, there's no possible way you are going to get anything out of biohacking thing or out of any other intervention you're going to try. Yes, mm. I will acknowledge there is bioindividuality. Absolutely. Yeah. Bioindividuality, that's nuance that is layered atop that foundational yeah. scaffolding, Makes right? Sense. And so it is uh, ridiculous to say that veganism is right for this person and a carnivore diet's right for this person and this person should do low carb, this person should do high carb. That's not how it works. Are your viewers familiar at all with uh, Dr. Weston A. Price? Do I don't think so. It would be good to give them an overview. I'll give you a quick synopsis. I actually serve on the board of the Price Potter Nutrition Foundation, in fact, which is a 67-year-old organization that owns the entire repository of his work and curates his, all of his, his writings and his photographs. He was actually a, a dentist. He was president of what was then called the National Dental Association before the American Dental Association that was more fluoride-based came on the scene. In this, we're talking in the 1920s. He found at that time that the children of his longtime client, you know, longtime patients, were showing up in his office with big dental problems he hadn't seen in their parents. You know, their teeth were malocluded suddenly, their goals were narrower, they had way more cavities, they had you know, way more problems. He was also kind of a bit of an anthropologist. He was fascinated by primitive, what he called primitive cultures, right? You know, the language was not exactly PC back then. And he had long heard about the superb health and dentition and, you know, skeletal perfection or whatever of many so-called primitive societies, he, he called them. And he wondered whether the change that he was seeing in the populations coming to see him might have something to do with the industrialization of the food supply happening at that time and the increasing consumption of what he called the foods of modern commerce. And it was such a unique time period because we had just developed air travel, but at the same time, there were quite a number of so-called primitive culture, you know, indigenous societies and aboriginal societies and things like that occurring and highly traditional, you know, societies tucked away in places around the world that had been doing whatever they're doing for hundreds or thousands of years. And he took upon himself the task of traveling over 100,000 miles over 10 years and going to, you know, dozens of these places around the world and looking at what is their state of health. And doing extremely careful scientific, you know, uh, surveys of everything from burial remains and things. And he, and he studied those and he studied the health of the skeletons. He studied the teeth and the skeletal structure of living people. He looked at the mental health, the physical health, and he looked at the nutrition wherever he went. You can imagine what was available as diets to people in the Aboriginal outback was going to be very different from, you know, an Inuit society, you know, in the high Arctic or an indigenous population elsewhere in North America, or the jungles of South America, or the African savanna. I mean, he went to all of these places. He found that there were, you know, extraordinary health and freedom from mental or physical disease in all of the places where people were doing their indigenous diets, you know, that they had been doing for thousands of years. He also looked at people from some of these cultures that had begun to enculturate into Western society. 
had moved into town, you know, started adopting different dietary patterns, and he found, you know, big changes in the health of those populations. But it was even more striking in their children, right? He started to see where the deterioration was happening. So what he ultimately did was he meticulously documented all of this stuff in photographs, what he's most famous for. You can go online, type in Weston A. Price into your search engine and look at images and you will see extraordinary photographs. You take pictures of the indigenous people groups that are clearly happy, beautiful, perfect teeth aligned. You know, malocclusion in teeth is something that is a modern phenomenon. Our ancestors didn't have that problem. They had all of their teeth and they were perfectly straight and they didn't get the cavities that we do and all of that. By the way, all of this ended up going into a textbook. It's definitely not a light read called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. That book was actually required reading in Harvard anthropology classes for many years. Very rigorous science. It's a classic. He was also smart enough to ask himself a question. In all of the cultures where I found optimal health and freedom from disease, what did all of those cultures have in common? What were the things in terms of their nutrition that they all had in common? And there were two things that he found. Number one, he wasn't able to find a vegan culture anywhere. He looked, he searched everywhere. He couldn't find one. He was quite disappointed because he expected he might find one. It didn't exist. But they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. All right. And the bigger the variety of foods, you know, oftentimes the better. But the other side of was that in every single case of what he saw as absolutely stellar optimal health, the most important foods, the most venerated foods, the most sought after foods, hands down, were those foods that were highest in fat, particularly animal fat and fat soluble nutrients which he saw is actually 10 times the level that existed in his time period in the so-called civilized population. And you can only imagine what the disparity must be now. So to my mind, what you have there is the foundational scaffolding in its base for every human being alive, or at least a good framework for a starting place. No, I guess a lot of the principles that you're talking about there follow in many ways paleo and the whole ancestral eating, ancestral living. So I think it's probably clear from the, the indigenous population that animal products and particular the fatty cuts of animal products were really sought after. But where do you go from there? How do you then work out what else to eat? One problem that I have with the whole paleo thing is that just because our ancestors did something is not necessarily a good enough reason for me to want to do exactly the same thing. You know, just because something grew out of the ground and they could put it in their faces and, you know, chew it up, swallow it and not drop dead doesn't necessarily imply that that food was optimal for them, much less us. So how would we know, right? They basically were doing whatever their environment, their ecosystem could support. There were certain foods that were fairly consistently available, as I just you know, mentioned. You know, animal source foods and fats kind of across the board. To me, that has to be the only rational starting place. But with the rest of it, how do you ferret out the rest? And the way I ferreted out the rest in my thinking about this and trying to connect dots was to look at what was going on in longevity research and seeing how I could cross-pollinate these ancestral principles with modern science, which was an advantage that we have that our prehistoric ancestors simply didn't. And what I find is that actually there are some things that cross-pollinate very well. What to me the foundational equation amounts to is that, you know, our prehistoric ancestors and we know from stable isotopic analysis of human bone collagen studies that have been done through the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology. They have consistently found through all time periods of our evolution that they've been able to find and analyze, which can help you know, illuminate what we actually were eating, right? 
they're able to actually pretty accurately determine what were the dominant foods available to those people groups. Consistently, animal source foods completely dominated our nutritional economy. And, you know, we had a hunting economy, we know, starting as early as two million years ago with Homo erectus, we already had a full-time hunting economy by that time. There has never been anything in the fossil record to indicate that we have ever been vegetarians or vegans, just literally nothing, nothing to mm. show that. Never been a vegetarian or vegan indigenous people group that has ever been identified, ever. It turns out for a good portion of that evolutionary history, we've been mostly hunters. But does mm. that mean that we need to eat slabs and slabs and slabs of meat today in order to be optimal? This is the so-called beef that I have with a carnivore diet. And I actually have an extensive article right now on my blog at primalbody-primalmind.com you can go to. And now I take issue with it, even though it's not necessarily wrong from the standpoint of what our ancestors did. It may not have been completely optimal for them to eat that much protein. Because of the modern world that we live in today, I think it is especially questionable to do that. And the reason for that has to do with what I came across in longevity research. I wrote the most about what I discovered in longevity research in my first book, Primal Body, Primal Mind. And I go into it pretty exhaustively. That's really interesting, Nora. Is there anything we can tell about our physiology or biology that indicates that we're meant to eat meat? We absolutely are physiologically designed to make the most optimal use of animal source foods. We have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, whereas herbivores, the animals that are actually designed to eat a high-carbohydrate diet, they have a fermentative-based digestive system. Their gut is mostly fermentative in a way that it processes the food consumed. You know, ruminants have four stomachs with which to do it, but other herbivores also have dominantly fermentative. And even our closest primate relative, you know, uh, non-human primate relative, which is the chimpanzee, about 52% of their gut is relegated to fermentation. So they're actually better designed to make better use of plant foods than we are. But it's sort of interesting also that really all of the great ape ancestors to which we are the most closely related, every single one of them hunt and kill and eat a certain amount of meat. And if you don't believe me, go to YouTube and tap in hunting apes. And, you know, if you have a strong stomach, you can watch this. <laughs> it is not easy to watch, but absolutely, they all hunt and kill and eat a certain amount of meat. The one great ape primate, although it's not one that we're more directly related to, but herbivorous gorillas that don't eat any, you know, appreciable amount of animal foods, they will eat some insects just incidentally noshing on leaves and stuff. They actually have a brain only about a third of the size that would be expected for a primate of their size. From the time of our earliest hominid ancestors, brain size is more than tripled. And it's very interesting when you look at not just the size of the brain, but the sophistication and certain characteristics, but also the composition. In our non-human primate relatives, the dominant fatty acid in the brains of a great ape is omega-6 based. For us, it's omega-3 based. And I'm not talking about walnut oil, right? What I'm talking about is docosahexaenoic acid. There are two fatty acids that characterize our unique human cognition these 20 and 22 carbon fatty acids, arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA, both of which are found exclusively within our human food supply in animal source foods. From animals that were allowed to eat what was natural for them, right? Not feedlot yeah. meat, because there aren't any omega-3s in feedlot meat. What you have is overwhelmingly dominant omega-6s that are going to have a higher probability of generating inflammation and things like that. Our ancestors got a ton of omega-3s and they weren't eating salmon. 
and you don't see too many cave paintings of fish either. You certainly <laughs> don't see cave paintings of potatoes or leaves or, you know, whatever. Yeah. What you see is mostly cave paintings of enormous, you know, herbivores that we now refer to as megafauna. On my own personal journey, I found that the more fat that I've eaten, the better I feel, my mood improves, my cognition improves. Why has fat got such a bad name if tens of thousands of years, you know, right. we've been designed to eat fat? Why is it so demonized these days? There are a couple things at play here. Number one, you know, the advent of vegetarianism and veganism to me is underscores just how far removed we've become from the natural world in which we evolve. We have forgotten. We are now living in climate-controlled environments where it's always 72 and comfortable. A lot of people have never gone camping or been out of the city. We're clustered in these large population centers. We eat meat, it comes shrink-wrapped from the store. We just, yeah. and a lot of kids today in schools don't even know where meat comes from. You say, well, where does this meat come from? And you, know, you point to the different animals and can't tell you. They don't know. That's you know, how far removed we've come. The other side of this equation has to do with following the money, mm. honestly. I did a talk at Montana State University back in 2018 and basically was designed to help people understand kind of how the system works and why there is so much confusion and so much disconnect mm -hmm. from what is actually natural for us versus what we are led to believe from the mainstream media, from conventionally trained nutritionists, from you know, the medical mindset, etc. Why is that so different? Why is it that a diet that is most aligned with our human evolutionary and genetic heritage consistently ranks dead last on the top 100 diets evaluated by, you know, US News and World Report, their annual mm. best diets of 2019, 2020, whatever, always, you know, ancestrally kind of like paleo approaches and ketogenic approaches rank dead last. To me, that's a badge of honor because what it tells me is that those are the approaches that are least likely to make transnational corporations money. You have to realize that out of the three major macronutrients, right, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there has never been a scientifically established human dietary requirement is carbohydrates. Not in any medical textbook of physiology anywhere. It just simply does not exist. And yet we have the United States Department of Agriculture's pyramid, you know, food pyramid that says, no, the biggest part of our diet is supposed to be these plant-based foods and, you know, grains and legumes and, you know, fruits and veggies, etc. Tiny little bits of meat up here and fat, you know, oh my God, you know, no fat. There are a couple of things that went into the development of that mindset. Well, number one, I can tell you there isn't a single transnational corporate interest anywhere on planet Earth that would not actually heavily profit from every man, woman, and child everywhere in the world eating a carbohydrate-based diet because it is cheap and easy to produce. It is almost immeasurably profitable. There's no way you can make 5,000% profit on a grass-fed steak like you can a box of cereal. If you look at, you know, human metabolism, right, and what it is that we burn for fuel, I use the analogy of a wood stove, you know, your so-called complex carbohydrates, you know, whole grains and legumes and, you know, sweet potatoes and things like that, those basically constitute little more than, say, twigs on a metabolic fire. And then your white rice, white potatoes, bread, pasta, crap like that, that's like crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. And then, you know, sugary things, sweet alcoholic beverages and sodas and juice, that's like throwing, you know, gasoline 
and lighter fluid on that metabolic fire. Now, if you have a wood stove that you use to heat your home with, all you have is a pile of kindling to work with. Well, you can certainly heat your home with that, but you better have a lot of space for what you're using to keep the fire going. And you better not have a whole lot else to do because what you're going to be doing, in effect, is having the doors to that wood stove open and you're going to be constantly preoccupied with where the next handful of fuel is going to come from to keep that fire going. You know, metaphorically, this is what probably 98% of our modern culture society across the world does. And that's why nutritionists say eat six times a day and, you know, don't skip meals and breakfast is the most important meal. But ultimately, with how you're going to keep that fuel going, God forbid you should forget, you know, to throw the thing in. You have other things to do. You're trying to sleep through the night. And yes, there's an analogy there too. You wake up at 3 a.m., the house is freezing cold, oh my God. And you go and oh my God, the fire's going out and you're crumpling up paper and putting lighter fluid in there, you know, to get it going again. What's the alternative to this? What if you're to take a nice big fat log and put that on the fire? Now you're free. You can go about your business. You can sleep all night long. You wake up in the morning, oh, the log's burning down. I'll throw another log on the fire. That log is fat. And mm-hmm. fat is a very long, even-burning fuel. Everybody watching this, even the uh, thinnest person watching this, probably has 100, 150,000 calories of fat on their body that they could be tapped into as an ongoing, reliable source of fuel, even in the absence of regular meal, in the form of free fatty acids that the body makes. By consuming fat, you get better at doing things. You're not going to get good at burning fat by burning carbs all the time. And there are reasons why the body does this. What we know in terms of longevity research among every centenarian you know, that's been studied, they have healthfully low blood sugar levels and very low you know, insulin levels. The less we rely on sugar and starch and you know, carbohydrates over the course of our lives, and we're able to healthfully maintain in terms of the demand for our insulin levels, and the lowest effective level of blood sugar we're able to maintain the longer we're gonna live and the healthier we're gonna be by far. When we are consuming a diet that consists of this kindling effectively, this metabolic kindling, who benefits from that? Well, we know the food industry because almost all of what the food industry sells is processed carbohydrate and all of its satellite corporate influences like you know the chemical industries creating all the pesticides and herbicides get thrown on public lands to grow monocrops. The phosphate mining industry that creates all the horrible things with strip mining in order to harvest phosphorus as an artificial fertilizer to throw in those agricultural lands while also creating this side product of fluorosilicic acid they call fluoride so corporations can make money from their waste product. And in addition to that, we have biosludge industry. That's another ugly industry. gets thrown on agricultural lands. We have, of course, all the metabolic diseases. I mean, Blood sugar medications alone bring in over $137 billion a year. It's huge money. Statins, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. There's no life without cholesterol. You have no brain. Fourth of all the cholesterol in your body, 25% of all of it is up here, and it needs to be there. We don't need to be restricting it, right? It's not a toxin. It's what characterizes animal life. We can't have a healthy immune system without it, and we can't have healthy hormones without it. You know, it's an essential part. And all kinds of feedback mechanisms in our body that regulate it. If your cholesterol is quote unquote high, that there's a big question as to what high actually is, because it's never been scientifically determined. It was just arbitrarily designated what's high and what's low. I will say that you need to figure out why your body feels the need to be producing more cholesterol on hand right now. There's something going on for which more cholesterol is needed. And in my view, it's the time to pull over the car. It's like a check engine light. Something's happening. And let's look under the hood and see what that is. You don't solve the problem by unscrewing the light bulb on your dashboard. Cholesterol is no more the cause of heart disease and gray hair is the cause of old age. 
even the association between cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular events and cholesterol is quite weak. And if you look at independent research that is not industry funded, you actually find that higher cholesterol levels are associated with greater longevity and greater freedom from cardiovascular events, not the opposite. Don't just take my word for it. I mean, Dr. Gary Fetke in Australia has created a brilliant talk on this subject. You know, maybe we can get a link and people will just go, oh my God, how do we not know this? A lot of the reason that the media and the medical industry and academia and whatever, these things are very profitable. When we are falling prey to metabolic diseases, there's a lot of profitability to be had there as well. There are whole industries that have cropped around blood sugar problems, cancer, you know, Alzheimer's disease, all of that. And so there really isn't any incentive for any of these entities to try to promote something to prevent those things because they're all able to profit from the problem. But the other side is actually the infiltration of religious ideology that a lot of people are not aware of. Frankly, I wasn't aware of until I watched Gary's talk. And it has to do with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was founded by a woman named Ellen G. White in the early 1900s. She came up with the idea that animal source foods were unclean and bad for everybody. And it wasn't based on any evidence. It was based on visions she claimed to have. And one of the early adopters of the Seventh-day Adventist ideology was John Kellogg, the guy who founded Kellogg's <laughs> Foods, the very first breakfast. And of course, breakfast became the most important meal of the day. And you've got to eat lots and lots of these cereals and things like that. Nora, I see that you write quite a lot around the paleo and keto movements, and in particular, what's wrong with those movements? Could you give the audience an overview of what you think is wrong with the paleo and keto movements? As I have sort of indicated, I take issue with the idea that just because our ancestors think that we need to do the exact same thing. That is mm-hmm. one of the disconnects I have with the paleo concept. I mean, to me, it is a rational starting place, but it's not the end point, that there's more to take into consideration. There are more dots to connect. So the other piece of that equation is that it became what started out as really an academic exploration of these ancestral concepts that was very interesting and exciting, turned into something that got co-opted. And I saw this was going to happen. By 2009, I could already see where this was going. And I was predicting this was going to be totally co-opted by industry. And now the food industry has gotten on the bandwagon and they're creating their different versions, paleo-friendly, you know, this, that, and the other thing. You know, you have cellophane-wrapped foods, cavemen stamped labels, and this is supposed to be an ancestral food for us, even though our prehistoric ancestors wouldn't have even begun to recognize it as food. Yeah, I agree. At any rate, you know, just a few years ago now, suddenly, you know, research concerning the rather extraordinary benefits associated with you know, ketogenic dietary approaches have begun mm. hitting, you know, the headline and more papers are being published and, and different things are happening that have caught the attention of the general public. And now all of a sudden it's a thing. And even faster than paleo, keto has become similarly insane. Nora, what does longevity mean for you? If we want to have a healthy, long, particularly post-reproductive lifespan, that is free of disease. And I'm not talking about longevity, like, oh, let's, you know, let's try to live 200 years. Look, I don't know. I could get hit by a bus this afternoon. Matters is quality of life. I want to know that for as long as I'm alive, that I have mobility, I have healthy cognitive function, I have rich and healthy relationships with people whom I'm able to recognize. And to me, that is the goal. And when I talk about longevity research, it's not about living forever. What characterizes longevity is this, the fundamental freedom from disease, 
that's the point. I like to think that if I do everything right, I'll be able to live a good long while. So many stressors that we face today that are completely new to our species. You know, we're in real peril, honestly, unless we get that. There is a little something I also point out. Today, we have this false sense of complacency living in our climate-controlled environments, having whatever we want to think of as food that we can shove in our faces and call good. But what threatens us today as individuals and as an entire species is the very thing we're not wired for are things that are completely invisible. We're talking about, you know, contaminants in our air, water, and food supply. We're talking about, you know, the depletion of nutrients from the soil. We're talking about GMOs. We're talking about EMF, right? You know, electromagnetic frequency pollution, field pollution, radiation contamination, all of these things. But because we're not wired for knowing we need to pay attention to that, we're vulnerable to that. And it's all the more reason why we have to be uncompromising in the choices that we make with respect to what it is that we choose to eat. That can be a real buzzkill at parties when I get off on this. But <laughs> what I'm here to say is that in the face of so many things that we seemingly can't control, it is incumbent upon us to take control of what we can. I think people need to redefine what they call living. Most people think, oh, I deserve this, you know, this ice cream or this cake or this beer. I don't think in those terms. Nora, you've created your own approach called primogenic. Could you tell the audience what primogenic is? I chose the term primogenic, encapsulate the idea of honoring our human evolutionary and genetic heritage, taking into account human longevity research and adding that cross-pollinating back to the equation, taking into account the uniquely hostile and toxic world that we live in today, because we have to take steps to safeguard our health. I take all that stuff into account in Primalgenic Approach, and I've created an online program called the Primalgenic Plan, a three-week meal-by-meal program. With almost everything you need to know to adopt this way of eating, it is a program that respects your intelligence. And by the way, this can be less expensive than the standard Western diet if you do it right. I'm not an armchair blogger or something like that. What gets me up in the morning isn't, you know, trying to think of new ways of getting my face on the side of a city bus or, you know, or building up my bank account. I want to give people those tools so that they don't need me in the long run. We all need to have a certain amount of authority over our own health. doesn't mean we have to understand it at a PhD level, but enough that allows us to be able to figure out, you know, what's true and what isn't, you know, what's optimizing what isn't, you know, you know what to buy, you know what to do. It fortifies that BS meter, right? I'm going to be teaching a free webinar. I'll get those details, you know, to you, Nick, so you can provide that link to your viewers. Yeah, will do. I've got one last question, Nora. What would be the three tips you would give to any executive that's looking to improve their own personal and professional performance? It's ultimately going to be as, as your health and the quality and functioning of your brain. And so quality nutrition, and I would argue primogenic approach that, I, that I'm talking about, could be very foundational to what gives you an edge over what, whoever your competitors might happen to be. The other thing is I would urge you not to focus on tiny biohacks, but have this foundation for any of those concepts. Find a meditating practice. It doesn't have to have, be associated with any particular form of spirituality or anything else. This is an exercise to quiet your mind in a world that is full of clutter and uh, static. You need to be able to find your center if you are going to be able to be able to be flexible enough to move from state to state as opposed to just getting stuck in overdrive all the time and blinders, you know, getting that tunnel vision that comes with that. 
I think that just spending whatever time you can, I mean, if you can do an hour, awesome. 45 minutes to an hour would be awesome for everybody. It's time well spent to get into that place, centeredness within yourself so that you can more be more effective in being able to think and reason and focus and be able to make better choices that aren't based on just knee-jerk reactions to things. That's amazing, Nora. Love this interview. It's been so insightful. Really, really, really has. I love your primogenic approach. Thank you again for your time. It's been massively insightful. Thank you. I would like to thank Nora for her time and her insights. Remember, if you would like to access our content one week before it's released, please leave your details at www.upgradedexecutive.com forward slash subscribe and we will send you a special link so you can access the videos one week before we officially release them you can also follow us on all of our social channels at connect with ue and also our website at www.upgradedexecutive.com